0: Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter.
1: Download episodes of previous shows.
0: Welcome to the podcast.
2: It's TED Talks Daily, I'm Elise Hugh. Choosing between our careers and quality child care is a stressful and weighty choice that today's speaker says we shouldn't have to make. In his talk from TED Monterey 2021, entrepreneur and education advocate Chris Bennett offers a way to transform how to find daycare or school for kids during those crucial years for early learning.
3: Hi. I'm Mona Chalaby, host of a new TED podcast called Am I Normal? Everyone wants to know if they're normal. Is my body normal? Are my feelings normal? Each week we'll tackle a question by digging into the numbers, consulting experts, strangers, and even my mum to get the bigger picture. Get ready to ask yourself: does normal even exist? This season, friendships. How many close friends should I have? Check out Am I Normal wherever you listen.
0: You wouldn't put your teen athlete on the same field as the pros, so why would you take them to the same doctor? Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Orthopedics and
1: Sports Medicine is Georgia's only nationally ranked program for teen athletes. Visit today at choa.org slash teens. The following message is brought to you by WISE, the smart way to move money internationally. Do you ever send money or shop online overseas? Receive money from abroad? You should use Wise. Wise always gives you the real exchange rate for a super low fee, so you hang on to more of your money when it crosses borders. Wise is like a permanent promo code for sending, spending, and receiving money internationally. Wise will be cheaper and faster, whether it's your first international transfer or your hundredth. Join 10 million customers and try Wise for free at wise.com slash
4: talks. This is Yoli. I went to her childcare program that she started out of her home in the community where I grew up. I was in her program when I was four. Over the years, she served hundreds of children in our community. Her program was so fun. We played outside, we played hide and seek, there was Play-Doh, there were blocks. Yoli would ask us things like, how are you feeling today? Are you feeling happy? Are you feeling sad? Are you feeling angry? she really helped us make sense of the world. She really focused on communication. It was a mixed-age classroom. There were children that were infants. There were toddlers. The older children learned to lead. The younger children learned from the older children. As it turns out, we were doing incredibly important work in her program. People often think that the real learning starts in kindergarten, but 90% of our brains develop between the ages of zero and five. And far too many children don't get access to the type of early learning experiences I had in Yoli's program, whether that's through a childcare program in a home, a center, a nanny, a caring parent, a grandparent. In fact, 175 million children aged three to six don't get access at all. In the U.S., 51% of Americans live in areas called childcare deserts. Where there's not enough childcare. And what this shortage does is it leaves parents having to choose between their careers and childcare. Even in places where there's free childcare or public pre-K options, there's not enough spots. So parents are forced to drive across town for options that don't meet their needs. They're forced to wait in these really long wait lists and succumb to lotteries to try to get into programs. And this shortage isn't due to due to us not trying. In the 70s, we pinned our hopes on television to to solve our problems. Today, the touchscreen generation is learning how to count, how to read using apps and games, but apps and games can't care for our children. Apps and games can't change diapers, can't ensure our children are getting access to the appropriate social-emotional growth that they need. And there hasn't been enough money, enough teachers, enough classrooms, We've tried everything. We haven't been able to solve it. So, what if we could live in a world where we did have enough childcare, where parents had a multitude of options to choose from in their communities? Maybe the answer is right under our noses. Maybe Yoli was onto something. Our homes. Rather than investing trillions of dollars building new buildings, what if we empowered more people to start childcare programs out of their homes? Based on our data, It costs about $25,000 per spot if you create a commercial space for childcare. That's 25,000 times each child you want to serve in that program, where you can do that for a fraction, a couple hundred dollars, if you do it in a home-based program. And we can make it easier for parents to find these programs. Software is great for this. So With software, we can make it easy for folks to start programs, get connected to parents, Decades ago, who would have thought that we would be able to create a software network of drivers, connect them to millions of passengers and solve the transportation needs or play a role in solving the transportation needs of our fastest growing cities, or take our spare bedrooms and apartments and make them available online and create an industry that competes with the largest hotel chains. So my dream is to create that kind of network, but for home-based childcare to create a movement where we empower people to start childcare programs out of their homes and play a role in solving the challenges in their communities. These programs could be more affordable, they could be nimble, safe, they could be laboratories of innovation. And I'm one of the entrepreneurs who's working on advancing home-based childcare. And what I'm going to share with you is how I think we can turn that idea into a reality. So first off when it comes to starting a program we want to make sure that the program is safe, it's high quality, it's a program parents can trust. Christina started a childcare program out of her home in San Francisco, she started with her husband. When she decided to start a program, she had to get registered with the state. She got licensed by the state. They came out and visited her program, made sure she was operating a safe program. She was background checked along with her husband. And if there's any issues that she experiences in our program, any violations, she shares this information with the state and the state makes it publicly available. To make this work, we got to make sure it's easy for parents to get this information when they're making a decision for their children. Along with this, we need more information about Christina's program. What's her background? What's her philosophy? What are her tuition rates? Who else is in the program? Is she operating a safe program? Is this a program parents can trust? Along with this, what do other parents think about the program who've been enrolled in the program? This is the type of information parents need when they're making this decision for their children. When operating a childcare program, it's not the same as driving a car, making your apartment available online or delivering groceries. It's really important we ensure that the programs that get created are safe, secure, and allow us to live up to the promise of early childhood education. Lastly, when it comes to starting a childcare program, we need to make it easier for folks to take the leap. There's this big misconception that starting a childcare program out of your home is expensive, and you can barely make a living doing so. But that's that's not true. The economics vary widely by location, by your home, by your background. It's really similar from an economic standpoint, the way real estate works in terms of how rents work in different markets. For example, when Christina started her program, she was able to break even within three months of starting her program. And we're seeing folks start programs in studio apartments with one or two children in the program. And we're seeing a wide variety of different types of folks starting programs. We're seeing grandmothers or former K-12 teachers. We're seeing social workers, artists. We're seeing... Montessori teachers who've been in the field for 20 years and realized the opportunity of running their own program. Folks who are into forestry and have master's degrees, former nurses starting fully outdoor programs. Going back to Christina, Christina was a former child therapist, and uh, when she started her program with her husband, she quickly got to a point where she was earning six times as much income running her program than she was in her prior career. She's able to move to a single-family home in San Francisco to operate her program. And the big reason why she's able to do this is she's not having to incur the cost of commercial real estate. She's doing this out of her home. And her program is actually more affordable than programs nearby. It's a win-win for her and for the parents. So I want to live in a world where there's more Christina's, where there's more Yoli's, where parents don't have to drive across town for programs that don't meet their needs, where parents don't have to drop out of the workforce to ensure their children are getting access to the vital early education our children need. A world where we can walk around our neighborhoods and tour a Spanish immersion program, a fully outdoor program, a science-based program, and make a choice. It's during these early years children learn to speak, They learn to communicate, they learn teamwork, they learn what it's like to start something and fail and try again. A lot of the skills I use as a CEO today, running my company, these are things I learned before I was five. These are the moments and experiences that make us who we are make us human. And I can't think of anything more important than that. Thank you.
0: Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. Sports and business both require great leadership to make big things happen. But the parallels between the basketball court and the boardroom go a lot deeper than you think. On How Leaders Lead with me, David Novak, you'll find conversations with the top athletes, entrepreneurs, and CEOs to talk about performance, decision-making, communication, and the mindset required to succeed. Listen to How Leaders Lead with David Novak and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Ryan what's up buddy
5: spence thanks for having me
2: I appreciate the time as always so I believe the uh the phrase was the analysis is sound but the data is bad uh, during the state of the NBA regarding the Utah jazz care to explain
5: <laughs> yeah um I'll set it up first with one of my favorite stories from a buddy that uh you know worked for for a hedge fund for years and I didn't know anything about that world so I'd always his brain because i found it fascinating i think i was fascinated because of how little i understood about it and so he you know we was telling telling me a bunch of stories and he was laughing about how they had this analyst who just bombed on like the bunch of financial decisions that he had made just bombed, like got it all wrong and they were like what happened like what did you see here and he was like well the analysis was right the, the data was just bad the outcome was bad and it was like wait what did you just say so basically his whole point was that everything he did was right it's just that all the other stuff was wrong and it shouldn't have happened. So whatever, it was It was a reach. I was trying to think of something with Utah because I think when you look, you know, you go back and you get ready for the upcoming season and trying to figure out who you like and who you don't like, and you go through all the numbers with, with Utah, they're ridiculous. I mean, the plus minus, the differential over the course of the season was an absurdly impressive number. And, you know, there's been a lot of Gobert stuff that I know you probably want to get into here over the this off season where it felt like, People turned against him in the Clippers series, and then it was like a bunch of media members that came to the rescue for Gobert. It was actually really impressive how, how much support he had. So I think the the intro, the the end of whatever I would say about the Jazz, like I really like them. I think they're going to have a great record in the regular season. They might be the number one seed in the West. They could be even better if they were a little healthier. And I don't think anybody's going to care when the playoffs come around, which is both fair and probably unfair.
2: No, I, I think it's entirely fair. I, I don't know that uh, at this point, after really four-plus years with this group, that anything else matters. And I know you know Zanuck. He's now the primary decision-maker over there, and Dennis Lindsay has stepped aside. And so the, the, the natural question is, because I said this yesterday, I don't care if they go 82-0. and That would be really cool, but I'm kind of over the regular season stuff. Do you think Zanuck has done enough in the offseason to at least give them a chance to change their end game this year?
5: I think he'd probably push back on you saying it's been the same group for four years, right? Because the argument would be, hey, you know, give us another, another full. This is the first normal season now we've had in a couple of years, and this is if Xanek were speaking. You know, let's let's see what happens with a full season of Conley and Clarkson being part of this, and you know, everybody kind of understanding the roles, um, and you know, a couple of minor changes around the edges. Which I think, you know, you and I even talked about at the close of last year. You go, okay, what's going to happen this off season? You need to bring this group back, like we. I think collectively lose our minds with our lack of patience about anything. Um, when we see teams that don't go far enough in the playoffs, we're like, all right, figure this out. I mean, the, the amount of stuff that Neil Olshay's dealt with with Portland, where everybody's wanting to break up that backcourt the entire time. And Portland's stance is, you know, we're still a pretty good team. Like, yep, I know nobody's picking us to win a title. We know what that's about. But it's also, there's not much wrong when, when you're winning almost 50 games and Portland's argument is that their their five guys are like incredible and they're they're differential for their five guys and they think they added to their bench and I think a lot of similarities there with Utah except I think Utah's a better basketball team where you go all right this is disappointing get exposed a little bit here when the Clippers went small is that specific to a team flaw or is that a matchup flaw like you still would need Rudy against other big front line teams and that would be the Lakers if the Lakers are in this towards the end so. I don't think that there was ever going to be this big overhaul or this big move to kind of change because it felt stale. And if people want to tell me the Jazz felt stale, okay, fine. Jazz is stale, but they're still a really good team. And, you know, at some point you've got to kind of sit in a room and go, all right, who, we are, who are we? We're, we're disappointing, but we're also still really good. So why would we shake this thing up? Because the whole point of sports in any of these leagues, whether it's college football, you know, pro football, baseball, and it's just having a chance that things break your way. And the Jazz can at least say they have a chance before the season even gets started. So I don't, I don't think there's necessarily like, hey, wow, they should have done this or they should have done that. I, I actually admire the fact that they didn't break up the thing because of a disappointing playoff loss, which shouldn't have happened against the Clippers. And they go, all right, we still have another chance, so let's not lose our minds here. Because those of us outside the rooms, I think are the ones that always kind of lose their minds.
2: So, um, Rudy Gay added, Eric Paschal added it as well, and as you know, it wasn't just the Clippers a year ago. Mike D'Antoni with his Houston Rocket teams came in here and small-balled Utah right out of the playoffs, and I think the reason a lot of people came to stand up for Rudy after the Clipper thing is it wasn't Rudy uh, who couldn't handle the perimeter players. It was the perimeter defense, and it could have been Conley's health and Donovan's health and... You know, the fact that Clarkson doesn't guard and Ingles is slow. I know that's your boy. Bob Donovich can't guard either. So, Rudy Gay, Eric Pascal, I like Jared Butler, but I don't trust rookies. Everyone's excited about him. He played nine minutes last night, shot five shots, didn't make any of them. So, is the perimeter defense better? At least good enough that if uh, a Dan Tony type situation with Houston presents itself or the uh, you know, Ty Lue, Clipper situation presents itself when it's five guys between like six three and six nine on the floor. Can the Jazz hang in those situations? Because that's been their Achilles heel the last four four plus
5: years. Well, okay, there's a lot there, and I I know you you have more faith in Jared Butler after just one one game. Um, Butler, I think if he had if he had checked out health wise, would have gone a lot higher in the draft. Well, I agree so with I, that. I Love that pick. I agree. With yeah, that. yeah, I love that pick, and. You know, even though I'm with you on on rookies, you know, I watched what Duarte did for the Pacers last night, and I mean, he's calling for the ball. And I'm not saying that Butler's going to be Duarte because that guy's like a special case. And if you were younger, he would have been a top. I mean, every time I watched Duarte at Oregon, I'm like, wait a minute, I think this guy just has to go higher. Like, even though he breaks every single draft rule for being what 23, 24 years old. Um, I think Butler has some of those things though. Is the reason I bring up Duarte, I'm not saying he's as good, obviously, but when you watch Butler play, he was an adult. You know, those Baylor guys were adults. Those are guys that I think just generally have a chance to be more impactful at a younger age. And the funny thing about Rudy Gay, every time I'd look up the defensive stuff, and you know, a lot of times it, I don't know that, you know, defensive stuff is like summer league, like summer league. I only agree with if it Enforces my opinion on a player. And then if I, if it goes counter to what I think of the player, I'll be like, ah, oh, whatever it's summer league. Right. <laughs> so yep. defensive stats, mm-hmm. you can do, you can do the same thing with, but I still think the defensive stats at the extremes tell the truth. And Rudy Gay was off the charts. Like go back and look at some of those defensive numbers. I couldn't believe it. I'd be like, wait, he's still registering like up here with the guys that you consider some of the top defenders. So that was clearly part of some of the, you know, like, hey, what can we do? What kind of moves? Because all these moves to the Jazz, and we talked about this last spring, like, or the summer, the Jazz, the Jazz moves are going to be on the edges, right? We knew that, and you know, I think they did the best that they could, knowing how much money they have locked up into three slash four guys. Uh, the Rudy part against the Clippers, I, I don't, you know, that sucks for him. It sucks for him to have to. Rim protect and then also chase somebody in the opposite corner. I don't know, you know, I don't know who does that. I don't know who's able to do that. But the part where I don't have sympathy for Rudy is that, you know, then go make him pay on the other end. And he's proven that he's incapable of that. So I think whenever I hear a Gobert, you know, I think Hollinger had him like number two or three in his MVP voting. I'm like, look, man, I know what his plus minus is. I know what his screen set ratio is. I know what the defensive on-off numbers are. They're all insane. We've known they've been insane for years. But the more I keep watching hoops, the more I kind of keep back to, like, the real guys show up and we learn who everybody is in the last four or six minutes of a playoff game. And those, I don't think, have been great Gobert minutes. So it's going to depend on the playoff matchup. It really is, because like, then there's some people listen to this, and I've seen these arguments before, because I know they're paraphrasing what I've said. It's like Gobert's never been played off in floor his entire life, and on and on and on. It's like okay, but he's never really made anybody pay for making him run around either. So there's certain matchups I'm going to like against Utah, and there's other matchups where I think Gobert is going to be a really important player. But it's I don't think it's I think it really is a series by series case if you start projecting out of the playoffs.
2: No, and, and the, you know, a lot of that's spot on, especially the stuff about Rudy. But he, here's the thing, because we do have this thing with Rudy in our market where a lot of these guys stand up for him like he's their son. And I think it's a bit odd because offensively, well, yes, we we don't do the screen assist thing. Like, I follow Locke on Twitter, so I know the numbers. Um, but he's, you know, Zanuck calls him the most unselfish player in the NBA because all he does is set screens and try to create gravity. But I, I know you watch the Olympics they actually utilize Rudy in a role scenario to punish the opposition. Now, I know the Lakers aren't, you know, insert small country here. It's different level of competition. I actually think that he has it in him. But oftentimes when he catches it on the post, it's so embarrassing that I don't think the, the other guys want to feed him, the, feed him the basketball to make other defenses uh, pay for essentially kind of ignoring him. I think he can do it, Ryan. I just don't think the Jazz use him that way.
5: Well, he can do it great. You know, I'd I'd love to see it. I've always thought that he plays a little smaller than he is with the ball, which is something that drives me crazy with big guys. And I'm not talking about the seven-footers that are obsessed with being perimeter dudes and trying to shake you for a three. It's just, if you're big, be big with the basketball. And I always thought he kind of invites, like, he kind of, you know, he's just not, it's never been as fluid. The fact that he is who he is is one of the most incredible developmental stories in the history of this league. No doubt. And I know we've been over this before, but everything he's done and who he's been and the accolades and the money, like he's still winning 10 times over based on what you thought when you saw him coming out of France. Cause it was, it was kind of a mess. So I'm, I'm happy for him there. You know, I would never, you know, it's just one of these weird deals where if you knock anybody now that it's like, Oh, you're hating on Rudy DeBaron. It's like, no, I'm not hating on it, but I'm, if we're talking about winning a championship. This is different. It's the same way. Why we'll talk about James Harden differently than we talk about, um, Brunson and Dallas, you know, like there's, there's a different level. And when you're in this neighborhood or hoping to be in this neighborhood of title contenders, we're going to be a little stricter with how we kind of think of, of some of your dudes. Now I would, I think, and it's the old Larry Brown thing when he got Ben Wallace where I remember interviewing him years and years ago. And I was kind of like, why do you want to get Ben Wallace to basketball more? And he goes, well, you got to make sure your big guys get to touch the ball every now and that man. You can't ask him to just rebound, defense, switch, box out and, and set screens all night long. Like, let them feel like they're a part of it. So if that's a focus, and he shows a little bit more of the stuff that we saw in the international stuff, I'm all for it. I'm all for it as a concept, even if it doesn't necessarily work out. So he feels a little bit more engaged. I mean, it's amazing he's disengaged without getting the basketball. But the league, the league is like the learning. You know how, like, when you're a kid, everybody plays soccer, and then, you know, some guys don't want to play soccer anymore, and then junior high, like, almost all the kids you play with don't do it. And then if you're actually, like, good enough to play in high school, like life with sports in general, too, just goes – We go through these ways of kind of weeding each other out, and the NBA is a perfect example of that with how you look at people that score. Every one of these guys that played at some point were the best scorer ever, and what they hate doing at the NBA level is giving it to somebody they think that doesn't have as much of a chance, and that's probably the problem that Gobert's dealing with with real scorers around him, especially somebody like Mitchell.
2: And I do want to talk about Donovan, but I I probably buried the lead because um, you know John Schumann's NBA.com, uh, you know his his previews his his previews that he does with every team then league wide I, I you know I try to dig into it because I think he's a really smart guy he's and, really good yeah, yeah he's, he's great. great job and so um, Rudy uh, has the biggest as as far as on court off court splits there's not a bigger split in the NBA for one individual player it's a seventeen point nine point swing per hundred possessions if Rudy's on the floor or on the bench. So they've got to do something about the non-Rudy minutes, and I know if I know one thing about you, I know you're a huge Whiteside guy. So Hassan Whiteside is that enough for the Jazz to at least stay afloat while Rudy has to sit?
5: Well, at least he's cheap. Uh, I'm not a Whiteside guy, and if the Heat gave him max money and then benched him at the end of games, um, that's that's pretty much all you need to know. Yep. Uh, he chases blocks and gets out of position. Like he, his efficiency, he is, he is the most misleading PER guy, I think, of our lifetimes. Now, if he has a chance, fine in this role. It isn't a big investment. I usually don't get super worried about teams with the, the 10th or 11th guy based on the transactions. Um, but I've, I've never been a huge fan. So we'll see. I just don't think he's disciplined. I think it's insane because the numbers tell you that you're seeing something that when you watch it, you're like, wait, and, you know, P E R rewards guys that don't take a ton of shots and only take shots around the basket the rebounding rate. And even Hollinger who came up with PER, admits this, like if, if it weights heavily towards somebody, it's bigs that aren't taking a ton of shots and it just shows their numbers are through the roof. And people used to actually argue like, Oh my God, how great is white side? Yep. Look at these numbers, look at these numbers. And I go, yeah, but I think a lot of that stuff is, is good for him individually, but takes away from what you're trying to do, but them doing it and giving it a shot, you know, go for it. You know what I mean? Like, go for it. Um, it, I don't know. I'm trying to think what it reminded me of. I don't know. Emmanuel Moutier. It's it's
2: Moutier. Moutier is the name. It's a a Moutier feel. There's no doubt.
5: Like, hey, let's see how this goes. Oh, okay. (laughs) Everyone told you you That's. I'm never going to get real fired up about, oh, okay, this is maybe the 10th guy on your team, all right, let me spend an hour crashing you because I haven't liked this PER in the past. Like, I don't care. Like, go for it. Sure.
2: All right, one more jazz thing, then I want to move on to some big-picture NBA things. But uh, you mentioned Donovan, and, you know, you can do this with a lot of players, but bear with me for a second. There are two sample sizes that aren't super large but are large enough to talk about that indicate that Donovan might be ascending to pretty rarefied air. So number one is last year, post-All-Star break, pre-ankle injury, we're talking about like 32-8-5, and five. all NBA numbers, and the Jazz were winning at a high clip. His efficiency was better. The defensive stuff is still odd. Like Van Gundy always talks about how Donovan was a defensive stopper at Louisville, and that's how he was scouted. So there's that sample size. It's a little under two months. The other sample size, his last 18 playoff games, um, more than 10 threes attempted, averaging over 32 points and shooting over 45% from those threes. The list is Donovan, Steph, and Dame. Is that who he is? Are we going to see the sample size broadened a little bit? Or am I kind of getting ahead of myself?
5: I love him. I don't think he's those guys. Um, You know, it was really crazy during the playoffs last year. Like, It felt like every game that I'd be watching it would say, okay, you know, this, this guy just did a thing that hasn't been done since Wilt and Kareem. And then it'd be like DeAndre Ayton. Or this is the first guard to do this since Jerry West, Michael Jordan, and, you know, Tim Hardaway Jr. And you're like, wait, what? and the the reality the reality of it right now there's never been an easier time to score. It's never been an easier time to score in the history of this game. Uh, and the shot making on top of everything else is absurd. You know we've never seen guys this many guys on the floor at the same time capable of making shots that you would have gotten benched for. Uh, years ago, but it's just, it's just never been easier to score. And I think in even a short season with the lack of defense and, and just a lot of the stuff that was going around, there was a, I don't know if there's a correction coming where guys are going to be a little bit more locked in or maybe some bad habits are developed. So saying all that, I think historically looking at some of the comps on some of the offensive numbers and the way his sister handed out now, uh, it can be a little misleading, but I still, I still think he is as special as it comes to, you know, I'm not going to put him ahead of, of the clear headliners, but you know, back to my whole last four or six minutes of a playoff game, like he's a problem. He's he's somebody that really you have to focus on because of his drive shooting ability. So you know, where does he rank? I I don't know. I I would just say that there's there's a there's not a long list of guys ahead of him that I want the ball. You know, I know we've talked a little bit of the past about. You know, is a little Westbrook-y at times? You know, Westbrook last few minutes of a playoff game, like good luck because it's going to be bad decisions all over the place. He's going to make terrible defensive decisions, which are actually worse than missed shots. But with Donovan, even though he can force the issue a little bit, I think he's just a tough, such a tough guy to defend that you have to kind of change what you're doing defensively against him more so than other individual perimeter players. So, um, I'm a huge fan. You know, I'm a huge fan, but to start saying some of the Steph stuff because statistically that's where he lives. I don't, I don't know that he has the gravity of a Steph or maybe the shot making of a Damian Lillard.
2: Yeah. And and that's fair. All right. Let's uh, expand the conversation a little bit. And starting today. By the way, yeah. Just
5: real quick. Yeah. No one, no one has the gravity of Steph offensively. Sure. So sure. I'll leave that out there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's uh, yeah, that, that, that's fair. All right. So one of the players that over the past few years has, has uh, been compared, that's been compared to Donovan, uh, because he won Rookie of the Year and Donovan didn't, even though he had already been in the, the league for a year. That's a, another topic for another uh, day. I didn't like it when Blake Griffin won it. Didn't like it when Ben Simmons won it. But moving forward, let's not do the whole who would you rather have, Donovan or Ben Simmons. I think the writing's on the wall. And look, I, I've always been very honest about who Ben is. I think he's awesome. I think he's built uniquely. Um, the shot stuff, of course, is... is it, it, It's now to the point where it's strange. It was bad before, and now it's just odd. I don't know if he's broken. I would be bummed out if my head coach was asked a question about me, and he's like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you can have this guy or whatever. So I understand why he's frustrated, but what do you make of this entire situation, and how does it end?
5: He'll get traded at some point. Um, You know, I, I thought it was kind of cool in the beginning, based on who I was talking to. I was kind of expecting the fake injury. You know, when Kyrie was demanding a trade from Cleveland, He was like, "All right, if you don't trade me, I'll just get something scoped out here." And that's when they had to give in and they got worked on that trade. Um, You know, Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder, and and the pick that ended up being Sexton. Um, That's you need to do better (laughs) for two years of of Kyrie Irving, even if it didn't work out for Boston. So I was wondering if that's what they were going to do, and that's always the fear around the league. Is like when somebody makes a demand, they can just say, "All right, well, you know, I'm not going to get suspended, but I'm going to be hurt." and then they get all their money. Um, I always thought this was very different because this is uncharted territory here. I think some people, you know, are so accustomed to, we've, we've desensitized ourselves to like, oh, this star's mad and he wants to trade. So now he gets his way. And it's like, okay, but this is different. He has four years left. So he can't do the hardened, Hey, I'm out of here, but I'll only play for like this team. And then, you know, I still think he was very close to going to Philadelphia and then didn't happen for a bunch of different reasons. So, as this story is developed, um, I don't have a ton of sympathy for Ben Simmons. I just don't. Um, you know, I don't think he – I think these guys post LA Fitness workouts on Instagram and, and start saying, like, don't sleep on me or the eye roll emoji and all this stuff, and then you get to a game and there's there's no carryover. There's none. The most comfortable jumper I've ever seen Ben Simmons take was a baseline fadeaway from the left side because the shot clock was going down. And the reason why it looks smooth is because he wasn't thinking. And you know, as a shooter, Spence, and I mean that seriously, you lit it up when you were in high school. No big deal. Um, the best shooters don't think about it. They just shoot. And it's clear that he not only can't shoot and doesn't put, or hasn't put the right work in. You can, you can do, you know, a ton of stuff at the gym, but if you're doing it wrong, it doesn't mean anything. So I, I don't even know what to believe when it comes to his work ethic. Cause I've heard all sorts of things that people have been like, you know, a lot of this stuff is just nonsense anyway. Um, if, if you're not, if you're not comfortable and you're thinking about it, and now it's become this year, you know, this is like his career. So now he doesn't want to get fouled, but he doesn't want to take shots. I mean, the end of those Atlanta games, that playoff series, and I, you know, this is something I really focus in on. Doc has this fake offense where Ben is part of it, but he isn't really. So Ben would bring the ball up. They'd set some sort of screen. Ben's defender wouldn't even leave the free throw line. And he would be clogging up Embiid on the catch. And it was a handoff to Seth Curry so that Embiid and Curry could run a two man game. So, like, Ben got to touch it, but it had nothing to do with it. And the fact that he was out there, like, people get on Doc for doubting Ben. If Doc really wanted to do it right, he would have benched Ben Simmons at the end of those games. So I know that we're all in this this place now where we're supposed to, you know, worry about everybody that's bummed out. And it's not because he has the money, It's it's just that. I don't have a lot of sympathy for him knowing how much the fan base has always argued that he and MB could play together, how much the front office has always argued that the two of them can play together. All of the people that looked at their plus minus over the course of a season and what it meant. I mean, part of Doc's solution that pitched him on this offseason was we'll play you together less. So you're telling me these guys can play together, but part of your solution is to have them play together less? I mean, you're admitting what we all know. Those of us that understand basketball can see how bad it is when you actually need to run one of those key possessions, that Ben Simmons guy doesn't have to worry about him. And it's even worse now after the layup stuff and all that. So, you know, I'm sorry people booed you. I'm sorry people are mean. But anybody that's working in the public eye, that's kind of what you sign up for. And there's a lot of cool things that happen in your life when you get one of these lives because very few people get it. So um, if you're going to ask out for four years and say Philly wasn't cool to you and now you go in and decide to be petulant and the worst employee of the month, you're just not going to get a ton of sympathy for me, especially when I see how many people in the media actually still want to defend him, which makes me feel like I'm not even fighting against Ben Simmons. I'm fighting against anybody looking at this rationally.
2: How, um, ha- have you given up the, the battle on emojis? Are, are you st- are, are your feet still in the cement? Are you still anti emoji and texts and life?
5: <laughs> um, no, but I did tell you, like, I had to lighten up a little bit on text because I just, everybody thought I was such a jerk because yep. I was so direct and concise that I added a ha. And then if I really want to lighten up, I'll I'll go, ha ha. So you're, that was something I've worked on. The
2: the extent is two ha's that that's all you'll do. So still no emoji. It's impressive.
5: I'm not, I'm not like, I just didn't know what to do with them. I don't even think I understand half of them. You know, what if, what if it's a GM of a team and he's like, do you know what this one means? And I'll be like, Oh, I, I thought that meant, you know, how's the Garden? And then he's like, no, that's not what that one means.
2: Oh, so it's for work purposes. You don't want to offend one of your sources. I see. Um, you mentioned the Garden. Let's end on this. Um, how bummed are you that my Knicks beat the Celtics in double overtime in the Garden?
5: I think you know me now enough at this point that there's just – I don't get super – like. would I rather the Celtics won last night? Sure. Mm-hmm. But emotionally, um, there's only a couple teams that I'm still emotional about. St. John's Red Storm, uh, Red Sox, UVM UVM lacrosse. Yeah, and look, the Red Sox, the Red Sox lost stung a little bit more than a season opener against the Knicks, but the the garden was awesome last night. That place was, it was it was terrific. I would have liked to see a few more Spike Lee cutaways. <laughs> I think we only got about eighty. Um,
2: they teased it on Sports Center like they were going to interview him. I'm like, oh, please don't, don't don't do that. Let's just stick with the
5: players and coaches. Well, he probably didn't want to do it because he usually charges.
2: Right. So. All right, man. Hey, look, this stuff lately has been great. I thought Feldman was awesome this week. Keep it up, and we'll chat soon. Okay.
5: Yeah. Go Utes.
2: Yeah. First place in the Pac-12. You want? You have a Utah take for me?
5: I just love that Arizona State game. I probably I probably liked them too much after the fact, but I just I love the quarterback. who looks like he's an extra from Days and Confused. Um, I just—that's a tough football team, and I know they're always tough. And I, I basically say the same thing I said with Repelman on my podcast. But um, you know, Oregon's way more talented, but getting worse every week. So I don't know. Maybe maybe the Utes are going to have one of those seasons that nobody expected. When every time we have these expectations for them, it doesn't quite work out.
2: Are you getting in your car to do laundry, go to the gym, or go to the beach? Gtl.
5: Um, no, I'm trying. I'm trying to get some errands done before the hoops start up again. Everybody loves this West Coast tip-off time. I hate it. All right, man. At four o'clock, I have to be back on the couch.
2: I think life is pretty good for you out there, so keep it up, man. We'll chat I'm not, soon.
5: Yeah, that's a minor complaint, but uh, I will deal with it. I'll get through this trying time. Thanks, buddy. Hang in. All
0: right, bye. Sports and business both require great leadership to make big things happen. But the parallels between the basketball court and the boardroom go a lot deeper than you think. On How Leaders Lead with me, David Novak, you'll find conversations with the top athletes, entrepreneurs, and CEOs to talk about performance, decision-making, communication, and the mindset required to succeed. Listen to How Leaders Lead with David Novak and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sports and business both require great leadership to make big things happen, but the parallels between the basketball court and the boardroom go a lot deeper than you think. On How Leaders Lead with me, David Novak, you'll find conversations with the top athletes, entrepreneurs, and CEOs to talk about performance, decision-making, communication, and the mindset required to succeed. Listen to How Leaders Lead with David Novak and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
3: percent of the population depend on aid to live. Everyone here is in need of help. The malnutrition rates in Yemen are amongst the
4: highest in the world.
3: Often when we talk about Yemen on Sky News, the focus is on the ongoing conflict. Civil war broke out in the country in 2014 as Houthi forces took over the capital city of Sana'a and later the government. Human rights groups describe it as the world's worst humanitarian crisis.
0: We are very fearful that any kind of blockage uh, of the free flow of humanitarian food, also commercial stocks of uh, particularly food and fuel could have a major impact uh, on on people who are already highly vulnerable.
3: The United Nations last December estimated that around a quarter of a million people had lost their lives, including many children. The UN recently warned that millions of people were just a step away from starvation. But another potential catastrophe looms just off Yemen's coast. An oil tanker moored in the Red Sea, north of the Yemeni city of Al-Hudaydah. Could this ship really be a bomb? What could a major spill mean for the people of Yemen, the shipping industry and the environment? And is anything being done to avoid a possible tragedy? Hello and welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast
1: with me, Dermot Murnan. What I'm talking about is an ageing supertanker moored off the coast of Yemen. So the Red Sea coast of Yemen. At the top of the Red Sea is the Suez Canal. At the bottom of the Red Sea is the Bab el-Mandab Strait. And through that passageway, about 10% of the world's commercial shipping travels. My name is Ed Caesar. I'm a writer for The New Yorker magazine. So Yemen is at the bottom end of the Arabian Peninsula. And it's a country that has been absolutely uh, bedeviled by conflict and by corruption and now by the world's worst humanitarian crisis. So all of the pictures I remember two or three years ago, uh, the world became very interested and exercised by Yemen. That problem has not gone away. There are still huge numbers of people who need food and basic provisions, and it remains the worst situation for ordinary people anywhere in the world. And sitting offshore is this
3: rotting and dangerous oil tanker. Tell us about it. The ship is
1: called the FSO SAFA, and FSO stands for Floating Storage and Offloading Unit. What that means is this ship used to be one of the world's largest tankers ferrying oil around the world for Exxon. In 1987, it was redesigned to stay in one place where it would act as a kind of floating petrol station. So other ships would come and berth alongside and they would offload the oil. So the Safa was connected to Yemen's oil fields in Marib by a subsea pipeline and then an overland pipeline. The idea being that you pump the oil from Marib, it comes cross-country, it goes through these pipelines to the Safa, and then other ships come and get it. And what has happened is that this ship has degraded to the point of collapse. It was built in 1976. And so it is 45 years old, which is ancient for an oil tanker. And since 2014, when the Houthis, this militia and Shia movement from the north of Yemen, took over the capital of Yemen, starting what is the most brutal civil war, this ship has not had any meaningful maintenance. And bits are falling off it, to put it (laughs) bluntly. It is falling apart. And there are many, many... Different problems with that. One of which is that oil tankers need power because they need their boiler to work. They need this uh, steam and power in order to operate safety systems. So if there's oil in your oil tanks on a super tanker, you need to pump inert gas in there to stop these oils from being combustible and from starting a fire or exploding. And since 2017, the inert gas systems on this ship have not worked. They have not been in operation, which means that a dropped cigarette, a bullet, you know, a cell phone even, in some people's imaginings, could set off an explosion on the ship. You know, that used to happen before inerting became commonplace. That used to happen with quite frightening regularity. Ships used to just explode. For many different reasons, this is... Terrifying. It's a terrifying safety situation. And Ed, how much oil is on board the SAFA? Uh, just over a million barrels. So that is four times what spilled when the Exxon Valdez ran aground in 1989.
5: It's obviously heavy, thick oil still in the subsurface, and those areas are going to have to be uh, treated later on and cleaned up. Uh, otherwise, the oil will continue
1: to leak out in the water. And everyone remembers those pictures. Well, I suppose you do if you're a certain age. I remember looking at them. Exxon Valdez, this horrifying environmental catastrophe. This has four times the volume of oil. It's located just offshore in this conflict zone. And what makes all of this truly terrifying, and I think is the most urgent part of the of the story, is that there is a port called Hodeida on the western coast of Yemen.
3: Udaida is a city home to around 600,000 people, and particularly vital
1: because... Through which two-thirds of Yemen's food arrives. And if the oil goes in the water from the Safar, that port will shut. And the UN has run numbers on what happens to Yemen, where all of these millions of people need aid, all of these millions of people need food, Imported food. What happens if the port of Hededa shuts? And they have estimated that 300,000 children would die either of starvation or disease from a prolonged closure of this port. This is a problem that needs to be fixed and has not been fixed. <laughs> um, and that's where the urgency in the story comes from.
3: What about is I mean, is there a crew on board? What about their safety?
1: Yeah, well, they are in... A extremely precarious situation. There is a skeleton crew on board. So in normal operations, the SAFA was a well-run ship that was well-maintained, maintained maintained well enough to pass inspections. Even as it got older and slightly more decrepit, the crew were professionals and they knew what they were doing. The guys that remain on board, there are seven of them, uh, and that includes a cook and a cleaner. There's an engineer, there's some mechanics, And they are operating in the worst conditions you can imagine. They are guarded, for one thing, by members of the Houthi militia who have weapons. There are surveillance cameras around the ship. There is no ventilation. There is no air conditioning below deck. I've just been to the region. It's 45 to 50 degrees. And they're working, sweating away, trying to fix these problems. Pipes corroding. You know, bits of the ship not working. They're trying to mitigate these risks over and over again. And I was just horrified to read the reports that are coming from the ship where the chief engineer is saying it is impossible to work in these conditions and impossible to fix everything that can go wrong. And disaster is coming. And only Allah knows when. Can I just go back a bit? How did you find out about it, Ed? I probably write two or three really long stories for the magazine a year. So I get to spend a lot of time on stories. And my editor and I have an ideas meeting every once in a while just to think about what I might do next. And he had been tracking, I think, some conversations in the UN where this issue had been raised. So there are people within the UN for whom this has been an urgent problem for some time, and they are desperately trying to fix it. And they're not getting anywhere because of intransigence from the relevant parties in Yemen.
3: Right. That's what I wanted to know. Does the world know about it? So elements of the United Nations are extremely worried about it. So what potential is there to, you know, to get someone or to get
1: a team on board to start fixing it? This is what the the UN wants to do. They want to get a team on. They want to inspect the ship for safety reasons as much as anything. They want to see what's wrong with it. And then a decision can be made about how to get the oil off safely. It's not actually the ship that is causing the risk here. It's its oil. If you get the oil off the ship and onto another ship, you fix this, uh, you know, the Damoclean sword of this crisis. (laughs) You fix that aspect of it. And then you can make a decision about what to do with the oil and what to do with the ship afterwards. What is stopping this from being solved is that the Houthi militia have obstructed Efforts by the UN to get their teams on board. The UN had a team assembled in Djibouti. They were going to sail up the Red Sea. They were going to go on board in 2019, and it was called off the night before. They thought they had an agreement again last year that was called off earlier this year. They are tearing their hair out, to put it mildly, that they cannot persuade the people who are in control of this ship to let them. Get there and fix the problem.
3: Who are they? Who who is in, you say in control?
1: Are they the owners, or is that unclear? No, no. It's now in. It's not. So the ship is now in um, Houthi-controlled territory. The Houthi militia, who took over Sanaa in 2014, who control large swathes of Yemen, and who don't look like being budged from their position, despite you know the Saudi-led coalition's efforts to dislodge them. You know, the leadership is uh, one thing. There are different groups of Houthis who have different interests. There does seem to be an element within the leadership that really wants to fix this problem. There are also elements who see it as a as a bargaining chip in larger wartime negotiations. And there hasn't been a way to get a concrete agreement on what to do with this ship.
3: Can I ask you this i mean it's a you know, kind of grade of risk I mean none of them are particularly palatable, but so you've described to us so it could blow
1: up or it could sink basically um yes w- you know which is the which is the biggest danger so I think sink i mean either way, the oil is going to go in the water that's the really bad situation, and depending on currents, depending on wind patterns, the oil mostly travels north up towards the Saudi border and up into littoral Saudi or it travels south along the Yemeni border and down towards the Bab el Mandab Straits. But it's a lot of oil. If it all goes in the water and it travels towards Bab el Mandab, you've got serious trouble with shipping lanes. I mean, you think we've got a supply crisis now. Flu jabs, chicken, and milkshakes. Just a few of the things that are currently in short supply in the UK. But I've been here 32 years and never ever seen anything like this ever. Wait till you can't get through bab Al mandab for two, three, four weeks while this is being cleared up. Ever Given was one week, and it seemed almost light-hearted at first this thing was stuck at the Suez Canal. A team of tugboats was put to work on the stricken
3: container ship today, but despite the considerable power of their combined engines, the Evergiven didn't budge. Wedged across the Suez Canal, the scale of the problem
1: dwarfing the machines that had been seen as a solution. The cost of business was about a billion dollars a day. And there are still effects of that stoppage being felt now. We have a global supply chain crisis. It feels very fragile. <laughs> you know, goods moving in both directions, you know, from Suez down to uh, Mandeb and, and up again. But this would be profoundly bad for business. But most importantly, fishing in Yemen totally destroyed. Uh, desalination plants on the coast, with, through which most of the Arabian Peninsula's water comes through desalination, or at least I think it's actually at least half. Sorry, I can hear the fact checker in my ear. Um, it's, I think it's at least half uh, comes, comes through desalination. So drinking water is a huge problem. When the UN were trying to explain to me the consequences of the worst case scenario, this is not all scenarios, but the worst case scenario is a famine unprecedented in the 21st century that's what we're talking about in the southern arabian peninsula and it's fixable which is what makes it so galling that this thing has even got to this stage and
3: what about on the explosion side of the equation i mean we're talking you know well we're talking about a year and a bit aren't we after the, the beirut blast i mean different i know but it was some um, stored fertilizer or material used to make fertilizer that killed The estimate
1: is about 200 people. Would it be of that magnitude? Well, I don't think it would kill that many immediately because there are only so many people on the ship and you're not close enough to Mm. land. But for the crew members that are, I think, somewhat heroically trying to keep this thing together, that is a very, very dangerous situation. You can't imagine anyone would survive a large blast on a ship like that. There are parallels with Beirut in a lot of this because someone went to inspect that uh, warehouse filled with ammonium nitrates six months before it blew up and said, this is going to blow up the whole of Beirut. It's not as if these dangers are unknown. They weren't unknown in Beirut. They're known here. One of the things that was modeled by, there was a British company that worked with some NGOs to model the various risks uh, from the SAFA. One of them was, you know, smoke and pollution and, you know, a huge black cloud of toxic smoke would blow in certain scenarios over a lot of Yemen which again is you know terrible news and as you're describing it it seems to be all caught up in the in that awful
3: civil war is it being used you know explicitly by the Houthis
1: as part of their leverage they would say no they would say oh we you know we want to solve the crisis like everybody else but It does seem to be appended to other bits of negotiating that are going on. The UN in particular have done their best to separate out what is on the one hand uh, an environmental and humanitarian issue and on the other wartime negotiations, they're trying their best to have this dividing line. You cannot have uh, certain things appended to these other negotiations. However, if the Houthis really wanted to solve this, they could have done there would have been a team on board. And with goodwill on all sides, this could be solved in a month, six weeks, something like that. That quickly. So you get the oil off and then make the make the ship
3: seaworthy. Exactly. Do you think that's going to happen? No, I don't, unfortunately.
1: Because, you know, one of the most chilling lines I got was from the man who had led the Houthi negotiations with the UN. And I had said to him what a number of senior figures involved in the negotiations from the other side had said to me. That it appeared that the Houthis viewed this ship as part of their defense mechanism of this area, that you know this is a highly contested area in the Civil War because Hadade is so important strategically, and I put that to him, expecting him to deny it, <laughs> expecting him to say no, and he said, "Well, whatever happens with the ship it's not going to change from a military standpoint, which is to say, yes, it is a weapon and we can use it as such. So I feel that until that idea is eliminated, until those opinions change, we're stuck. What I do know, however, is that there are people from the British, from the Dutch, uh, from the American governments, particularly working behind the scenes to try through interlocutors to persuade the Houthis to change their mind. There is a huge amount of diplomacy going on I just hope that it's effective.
3: My thanks to Ed and to you for listening to the Sky News Daily podcast hosted by me, Dermot Murnan. This edition was produced by Annie Joyce, along with our interview's producer, Tatiana Alderson. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find plenty more like it where you found this one, and we'd love a review while you're there.
4: The driver told us to throw every luggage we brought with us in the sea. 21 extraordinary personal
3: stories from some of this century's biggest news events. The Chilean mine rescue has to be one of the most amazing stories that I've ever covered. Storycast 21 from Sky News. Listen, follow, subscribe.
0: Eyewitnesses said a wall of water appeared to simply rise out of the sea. There was no warning